Okay. Then took her car back to her house, uh, left that, let me think now. Okay. What you just heard was Dennis Rader in court recounting the murder of Dolores E. Davis. The lack of care or empathy towards a victim is obvious. Today's podcast will have material that may be harmful or traumatizing to some audiences, so please be aware. all serial killers are given a moniker by the media outlets covering the ongoing cases. So that's generally how they all get their nicknames, such as Richard Ramirez, who carried out his series of late night home invasions in California between 1984 and 1985. He raped and killed 14 people, and he was referred to by the media as the Night Stalker. The Night Stalker's reign of terror came to an end when he mistakenly thought he could blend into a Hispanic neighborhood in Los Angeles. And for those of you who may not know, Richard Ramirez was Hispanic. And so while his face was all over the newspapers, he thought, I'll blend into a Hispanic neighborhood, which unfortunately was a really bad idea because his face was also plastered all over the front of a Hispanic newspaper called La Opinion uh, with a headline calling him, and I apologize if I'm butchering this, um, Invasor Nocturno, which is known as the Night Invader. So, he sees his face plastered on this paper um, as he was walking by, and he decides to flee across the Santa Ana Freeway and he gets the wise idea to carjack a Ford Mustang. So the owner of the Mustang is like, hell no, and pulls him out of the car. And there was this awesome article that was done by the OC Register on June 11th, 2016, um, where they had talked to the police who who were recalling the day that they had to go and save the Night Stalker from the residents of this neighborhood. So Ramirez runs across the street and he decides, okay, I'm going to take the keys from this woman because she's a woman. Since I can't get the keys from this guy with Ford Mustang, if I can't take this guy's car, I'm going to take the keys from this woman and I'm going to take her car. So he tries to wrestle the keys from the from a woman named Angelina de la Torre. And big mistake. So the woman's husband, Manuel Adela Torre, witnessed the attempt and he then starts to beat Ramirez over the head with a fence post. You heard it right. Ramirez starts getting his butt kicked by the woman's husband. So Ramirez decides to try to get away from the guy who's kicking his butt with fence posts, and the guy is not stopping because they recognize him. And this is a heated group of people who are sick and tired of the bad guy winning. So by then, about 10 residents have formed this group 
they've rounded up a posse, y'all. And they are chasing Ramirez down Hubbard Street into Boyle Heights. This group of hero citizens forced and held Ramirez down and relentlessly beat him until the police arrived to save Ramirez. So, on the 3700 block of Hubbard, they found Ramirez severely beaten and unarmed where he was taken into custody or saved by the police. The crowd by that time had grown into several hundred people and let's just say they weren't being very nice to Ramirez. The responding officer, Andy Ramirez, no relation, he stayed behind and tried to get the crowd under some control while Officer Jim Kaiser drove Ramirez to the Hollenbeck police station. So, the serial killer who stalked and terrorized citizens in California had to be rescued by police from the very citizens he had gone around terrorizing because they decided to kick his ass in the streets. So, as we're talking about the namesakes of these serial killers, that is just an image I absolutely love. So, if you look at Ramirez's mugshots, he's looking a little rough. I definitely recommend you guys go and Google search that because it's awesome. I, I absolutely love it, and I wish I could have been there to see those cops' faces because... It's awesome, and I love reading the article. Again, it was a great article done um, by the OC Register on June 11th, 2016. And it, it's hilarious with these police officers recalling how they had to go save Richard Ramirez. It's a great article. But we're, we're talking about how the serial killers get their names. And so Richard Ramirez was basically named the Night Stalker. But there had been an original Night Stalker before Richard Ramirez. However, Richard Ramirez was not the original Night Stalker. That moniker was actually given many years earlier to a man named Joseph James D'Angelo. Just nobody knew who he was. He had gotten a lot of other nicknames by the press over the 42 years before he was caught. Those nicknames were the Golden State Killer, the East Area Rapist, the East Side Rapist, the Creek Bed Killer, the Diamond Knot Killer, original Night Stalker, as we had mentioned. But on April of 2018, and due to the hard work of Paul Holes and some very innovative genetic testing that has finally come about, he was taken into custody in his Citrus Heights, Sacramento County home in California. The same county where his alleged crime spree began in 1976. 42 years 
later. So that gives a lot of us hopes who have lost loved ones, whose cases have gone cold, and we are still waiting for justice. There are other Paul Holes out there. There are other detectives, there are other geneticists out there. So we have hope and we have faith that the justice system will prevail. But back to Joseph James D'Angelo. So the crimes continued across the state until 1986. D'Angelo lived at home with his family, but he was home alone when he was arrested. D'Angelo had told the police he had a roast in the oven, so he didn't have all the panache and grandeur when he was taken in like Ramirez had. He just had a roast in the oven. But the police officers assured him they would take care of it, which they did, and he was placed under arrest without incident. So the former police officer who committed 13 murders, 50 rapes, and 120 burglaries across California between 1974 and 1986, the suspected Golden State Killer who was arrested for killing and raping dozens of California residents decades ago, he seemed kind of shocked to find police outside his home. The Sacramento County Sheriff's Department official, Paul Belly, said he didn't quite know what was happening and didn't expect to be arrested. But justice prevails. Joseph James D'Angelo identification had begun four months earlier when officials led by Detective Paul Holes and FBI lawyer Steve Kramer uploaded the killer's DNA profile from a Ventura County rape kit to the personal genomics website GED Match. The website identified 10 to 20 people who had the same great, great, great grandparents as the Golden State Killer. A team of five investigators working with genealogist Barbara Ray Venter, and if you haven't looked her up or read anything about her, I definitely recommend you doing that. She is amazing. They use this list to construct a large family tree. From this tree, they established two suspects. One was ruled out by a relative's DNA test, leaving D'Angelo the main suspect. On April 18th, a DNA sample was collected from a door handle of D'Angelo's car. Another sample was later collected from a tissue found in D'Angelo's curbside garbage can. Both were matched to samples associated with the Golden State Killer. Since D'Angelo's arrest, some have raised concerns about the ethics of secondary use of personally identifiable information. So, there have been some things going back and forth about this collection and how this goes within the public arena. However, when it comes to that, I, I definitely recommend people go back and read this material because 
when it comes to the access of this DNA and when you put, when you do 23andMe, when you go through and you do that type of genetic matching, there is release information that you do sign when you're putting it out there. Um, I am all for it. I say you go through, you do it, you sign the waivers. I am a proponent for it. I say it's fair game and it would be interesting and I would really like to hear from any other listeners on how you guys feel about it. So I say let's open the floor up and maybe we should do a podcast because there is a way to do a podcast where you guys can talk back and forth. So I would really love to do a podcast where you guys can talk back to me and we can talk about um, the collection of you know, these type of um, genetic testing and these websites and whether or not you guys think it's okay to be able to use this DNA um, to use in court cases or not, because I'm for it. I'm totally for it. As I've discussed, I have a family member who is essentially serving like two centuries Um, who is a serial pedophile. And if I I have not done this online, um, not for any legal reasons, I just haven't done it. Um, But I have had genetic testing done for medical reasons. And I'm completely for it. I think that this is something that, you know, if it furthers the cases and if I have anyone else in my family who has committed crimes or done any type of assaults or let's say murder um then absolutely I would do anything in the world to aid law enforcement to further their cases to be able to get them off the streets but I'm really curious as to what you think how do you feel about that So, that's my soapbox. I will step down now, and I'm really curious as to how you guys feel. So, D'Angelo had ended up making a confession of sorts. After his arrest that cryptically referred to an inner personality named Jerry, and I definitely think we will talk more about these inner personalities later. If any of you have read Stephen King's A Good Marriage... Um, I'm trying to remember what that inner personality's name was. Um, it escapes me right now. If you know, tweet me. Um, who had forced him to commit the wave of crimes that ended abruptly in 1986. According to Sacramento County Prosecutor Finn Ho, D'Angelo said the following to himself while alone in police interrogation room after his arrest in April 19th. In April 2018. Now remember, he's an ex-police officer, so he knows when he's in a police interrogation room alone, and yes, I'm doing the little quotation marks in the air, that he's not actually alone. So this is what he said while he's alone. I didn't have the strength to push him out, is what D'Angelo said to himself while he was alone let me repeat this I didn't have the strength to push him out 
He made me. He went with me. It was like in my head. I mean, he's a part of me. I didn't want to do those things. I pushed Jerry out and had a happy life. I did all those things. I destroyed all their lives. So now I've got to pay the price. Damn straight you do. Jerry, Joseph, whatever the hell you want to go by, damn straight. It's time to pay the piper. It's time to do the time for the crime. D'Angelo could not be charged with the rapes or burglaries as the statute of limitations had expired for those offenses. He was charged with 13 counts of murders, of murder and 13 counts of kidnapping. That's another thing I'd like to talk about. Let's talk about the statutes on rape. And that's something I have been tossing back and forth because we do have a statute of limitations on rape, but we have seen how sexual assaults scar the victims forever, and yet we have such a statute of limitations on rape. And it's something that we're going to cover later on in a podcast that I'm working on. Um, Because when I work on a podcast, as you guys have seen with my podcast, I don't just cover a crime and regurgitate the information on a crime. It's, okay, this is a crime, but where do you go with it? This crime happened, but there has to be something made of it. There, there, that victim and their family, you, we need to change something. There, there has to, they lost their life or they were injured. There, there, there needs to be something in the world needs to change. That sacrifice was made. We need to change something. So when it comes to this violence, these sexual violences, we need to look at a way to change what the law is doing with it. Because it's almost like these sexual abusers look at it like, okay, I do this time and I just go out and do it again. There, There's not enough of a repercussion for it. So... I went down that rabbit hole. Now I'm back. So D'Angelo was arraigned in Sacramento on August of 23rd in 2018. And in November of 2018, prosecutors from six involved counties collectively estimated that the case could cost taxpayers 20 million and last 10 years. So at an April 10th, 2019 court proceeding, prosecutors announced that they would seek the death penalty and the judge ruled cameras could be allowed inside the courtroom during the trial. On March 4th of 2020, D'Angelo offered to plead guilty if the death penalty was taken off the table. So that was the maneuvering that they did. So it's gonna cost all this money to prosecute and it's gonna take all of this. So we're gonna say we're gonna put him to death because most of these guys, the most important thing to them is living. So we're going to put death on the table so that they're going to do anything to take it away. So they'll usually plead guilty, so we'll take it away. 
So that's their little gamble and gambit. Most of the time when they say, all right, we're going to give them the death penalty. Most of the time in these legal proceedings, they don't actually mean it. It's one of those things of, well, mom's going to do something really bad, but they're only doing it as a threat so that you'll take the lesser and actually show some repentance. So, so on June 29th, as part of a plea bargain to avoid the death penalty, D'Angelo pleaded guilty to 13 counts of first-degree murder and special circumstances, including murder committed during burglaries and rapes, as well as 13 counts of kidnapping. So on August 21st of 2020, D'Angelo received multiple consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. D'Angelo offered a brief apology after listening to days of pre-sentencing victim impact statements. He stated, I've listened to all of your statements, each one of them, and I'm truly sorry to everyone I've hurt. So, that was his apology. So, the thing about these serial killers is, you know, they, they come in, they break into people's homes, they do these horrendous things, they violate their peace, their peace of mind, their safety, then they escape back into the neighborhoods and they live next door and they go back to mowing their lawns, they go back to work and they're there and they're next door to you and they go about their lives. Uh, it's, if I'm trying to remember, Cody Legenbrock, I believe, is uh, the recent one I heard about um, in Canada and I definitely recommend you looking up that case. Again, it, it's one of those, I think they're the most terrifying to us because they are the most normal and then committing the most horrendous of crimes. And we're all so terrified that when somebody commits a crime for life insurance, when somebody commits, when somebody kills someone for life insurance, when someone kills someone because they're being cheated on or they want something of theirs, it, it's still horrendous, but we understand it. it it's, it, it, it's something we can grasp. But when it's something like this and it's so far out of our understanding, then we, it, it just becomes something we all become obsessed with because we don't understand it. It's not something we can grasp. And when it's so far for something that we can really truly understand, that's where the true crime obsession begins. Because we want to try to understand because we don't want to become a victim. And even though becoming a victim of a serial killer isn't an everyday occurrence, you still become so afraid of the unknown. So one of the things that you may have noticed about the two serial killers I discussed earlier is the media gave them their names and 
the media base their names on their MO or their modus operandi. But our serial killer, yes, I said our serial killer here in Wichita, our local serial killer, his vanity, it ran so deep. And his need for control was so strong that he chose his own nickname. He had, his obsession was so great, he had to choose his own nickname. On October of 1974, the killer introduces himself to police. After one young man allegedly confesses to killing the Oteros with two friends, Don Granger, an editor at the Wichita Eagle, receives a strange phone call that directs him to a mechanical engineering book at the Wichita Public Library. Police find the book and a letter wedged inside, which reads, in part, those three dudes you have in custody are just talking to get publicity. The code words for me will be bind them, torture them, kill them. B-T-K. You see he added again, they will be on the next victim. Along with including then unknown details of the Otero killings, the letter is filled with what authorities come to recognize as the killer's peculiar brand of misspellings and grammatical errors, along with a distinct sexually suggestive signature. Now Granger immediately let officials know the police had found it but the contents were not revealed until another weekly newspaper, the Wichita Sun, which had only launched a few months before that, got their hands on the letter. So the Wichita Eagle was trying to work with the police, but the Wichita Sun, which no longer is around, got a hold of it. They published a portion of the letter which said, I can't stop it. So the monster goes on and hurts me as well as society. It's a big, complicated game, my friend. The monster play, putting victims' numbers down, following them, checking up on them, waiting in the dark, waiting, waiting. And in a postscript it read, P.S. Since sex criminals do not change their M.O. by nature, cannot do so, I will not change mine. And again, they posted in the paper, the code word for me will be, bind them, torture them, kill them. BTK, you see, he's at it again. 
is when you start learning more about your victims, potential victims. Uh, went to the library, I looked up their names, their address, cross-reference, and called them a couple of times. Drove by there whenever I could. So, what you just heard was Dennis Rader in an interview explaining the stalking and trolling of his victims. Back in that time, he would go to the library to check on the computer to find more information out about his victims. He would follow them. He would call their homes. He would stalk them. He would investigate them. So in typical coercive control fashion, he controlled his narrative. Raider controlled his own story. He gave himself his title. He will forever be known as the BTK killer, just as he wants. So about four years later, on January 31st, 1978, the Wichita Eagle received another note, this time in the form of a poem, starting with the words, Shirley Locks, Shirley Locks, on an index card, about the murder of Shirley Vianne. She had been killed the previous March. Around the same time, the Eagle got another letter about the Otero murders and the TV station Cake they got a letter referring to the killings of the Vienne and Nancy Fox, slain in December of 1977, as well as another unnamed victim. He drew pleasure from all the media coverage. He even expressed in one of his letters, how many more people do I have to kill before I get my name in the paper? Or some national attention. His last recorded murder was in 1991, but it was around the time of the 30th anniversary of the Otero family murders that Raider started to drop his hints once again. A cake viewer reported a suspicious box in December of 2004, which contained a Barbie mimicking the murder of one of the Oteros as well as Fox's driver's license. A month later, the station got a postcard leading them to a cereal box with a note where he asked, can I communicate with a floppy disk and not be traced to a computer? Be honest. That is correct, folks. The serial killer was asking the police to be honest with him. While the disc did end up being relayed, Raider's inability to hide the metadata from the documents led to his eventual arrest in 2005. On March 19, 2004, Hearst Lavinia with the Wichita Eagle was hustling from the newsroom on his way to a daily 10 a.m. police briefing when his editor, Tim Rogers, handed him a suspicious envelope just in from the mailroom. After a quick glance at the envelope, 
it was listed as Bill Thomas Kilman as the name of the return address. And the cryptic photocopy inside, three crime scene photos and a driver's license, Lavinia made photocopies of the material and he kept them. He took the originals with him to the police briefing where he gave the letter to police captain Daryl Haynes. This letter was after the Wichita Eagle had published a 30th anniversary piece on January 2004. Rader had admitted in an interview that this article really made him miss the spotlight, the control he had, and the fear he had put in the community. So on December 13, 2005, BTK leaves another disturbing package. He started leaving messages in various public locations. A man was walking through Wichita's Murdoch Park and he stumbles on a garbage bag. The garbage bag had Nancy Fox's driver's license and a Barbie doll with a hood over its head and its arms tied behind their back. On January 25th, 2005, a postcard was found. So they were acting on instructions from a postcard that was mailed to Cake TV and police find a cereal box on a road outside Wichita containing a graphic description of BTK's first murders and another doll fashioned in a death position. However, it's another section of the postcard which inquires as to whether his package was found at the local Home Depot that proves way more interesting to the police. After poking around the store, investigators learned that one employee had found a cereal box in the bed of his pickup truck. A search of his trash produces the box and a message asking if BTK could communicate with this floppy disk without being traced. So, the police decide to run a newspaper ad with the message, Rex, it will be okay. So, an undercover detective makes arrangements with the Wichita Eagle, and they run a classified ad that reads, Rex, it will be okay, contact me, P.O. Box, first four, reference number 67202. And six days later, BTK confirms his receipt of the message through another postcard sent to Cake. So, we have got this whole undercover classified ad thing going on. So, if you're wondering why an undercover cop, well, obviously, they don't want everybody at the Wichita Eagle knowing what's going on. So then on February 16th of 2005, a computer disk arriving by mail is relayed to cybercop Randy Stone. He uncovers BTK's message about checking an index card for more information, along with the hidden metadata that reveals the disk to have been used by a dentist at Christ Lutheran Church and 
Park City Library. Within seconds, an internet search for Christ Lutheran Church reveals the name of its president, Dennis Rader. Already armed with DNA evidence carefully preserved by the Ghostbusters, Lieutenant Landwehr and his team, they learned that Rader's daughter, Carrie, had been in the hospital for a pap smear. The hospital soon turns over a sample of her DNA, which matches that of BTK. We're going to get into this a little bit more later. We're just doing a brief synopsis right now. So on February 25th of 2005, Raider's heading home from the office to have lunch with his wife. And he happens to be pulled over by a police car. And he notices that the police car has a long line of other police cars behind them. And he is asked if they know why he's being pulled over and why he's being taken in. And he's like, I think I have a good idea. 